Hey, thanks for joining us at Connection Point Church. You know, we would love for you to stay connected and a simple way for you to do that is to subscribe so that each week you can get notified when new content goes live. We'd also love to keep in touch with you throughout the week and the best way to do this is through our Connection Point Facebook page. Now with all that being said, let's go to this week's message with our lead pastor, Zach Maddox. Well, the goal of the year-long series that we're getting into today it really is to help us know who we are as a part of the people group of God for the purpose of then being able to speak into every other area of our lives. That's the way we're really meant to be raised in the church, that, that we have this capacity to almost prophetically speak into all of these other arenas that we're involved in. And so what we want to do this year is spend time solidifying who we are. You see, God made you uniquely you. There's no one else like you in the world. There has never been, there never will be. You're it. God gave you your personality, your interests, and all of those for a reason. And one of those is so that the good news that Jesus came could be shared in every avenue of the world in which we live. We're all plugged into different things, and that's on purpose. God makes that happen. And I will say this as it relates to this series, the next three weeks are incredibly important. They set the stage for everything else. So, so I will say this, if, if you don't catch the next three weeks, make sure to go back and listen to those. As we get into today, Jesus and the good news of the kingdom, and, and next week, Jesus and scripture, and then Jesus and missions, those three are vital to understand everything else. You have to look at things through the right lens if you're really going to understand them, especially in the world in which we live in today. There's lots of things contending for your attention, your interests, your, and even in to, to influence you. And so you've got to make sure you're operating in the right mindset. So I will share with you this morning. So I'm condensing like 30 hours worth of material into like 50 minutes today. So I hope you're ready for it. It's going to be content rich, but I will say this. Here's my hope, and here's why I wanted to spend the time doing that. I was up past midnight last night at 5 a.m. this morning, like, I, I was trying to get it all there because here's my hope. My hope is you understand the gospel, the good news that Jesus came in ways you've never before. Even if you've been in the church for 50 years, I hope you understand it today with fresh eyes. My prayer is that you grab a hold of some truth today. You know, we have these, in our journey with Jesus, we have these times in our lives where all of a sudden there's this refreshing that happens. And today I want that to happen. That's my prayer for you today. I want you to see the good news through fresh eyes today. Look, I'm believing, I've been praying that we would see people's lives change right in front of us today. I really believe that's what God wants to do. And that might be your life, it might be the lives of others, but that's why we're here today. So are you ready? Good, I'm not sure if I am. <laughs> hey, if you have your Bibles... And I hope you've got God's word today. I invite you to, to stand for the reading of God's word. We're going to start in Matthew chapter 9. We're going to be in some, uh, some other scriptures today. In case you don't know it, there's something called version. There's an app you can put on your smartphone, your tablet, and we put all of the notes on there. So if you want to know all the scriptures covering, all the points we're going to hit on, you can always go to version, and we have everything loaded there for you to be able to access. just want you to know that this morning. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 9. And we're looking at verses 35 through 38. And Jesus went through all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. And I love that part of proclaiming the gospel is a healing of every disease and every affliction. Jesus preaches in word and deed, and so should we. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Anybody get a sense? We live in a world of people that are being harassed and are helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. But Jesus has a solution for that. He said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into it. These are the very words of God. You may be seated this morning. If I were to ask you, 
in one word or one phrase to summarize the ministry of Jesus, what would it be? One word, one phrase. Take some guesses. Love, that's a great one. Yep, I hear that one a lot. Anybody else? Summarize the ministry of Jesus. Grace, that's a big one. Mercy, what? Sacrifice. Salvation. All of those incredibly important words. And yet as you scour the New Testament and look specifically at Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, there is one phrase that jumps out, and it's the phrase, the kingdom of God. That phrase summarizes everything about the ministry of Jesus. And that's why this message is so important this morning, because we need to understand what the kingdom of God is. If you do not understand this message today about the kingdom of God, you do not understand Jesus. That's why this is vital. To understand Jesus, you have to understand the kingdom of God. And I would say this, because this is a year-long series, it's Jesus and. Okay, so if we want to understand this series, we need to understand the kingdom of God today. And here's what I have found, though. There's probably nothing more misunderstood than the phrase, the kingdom of God. So it's like the most important phrase and the most misunderstood. I want to resolve that today. And I actually think because we know the kingdom of God and understand it, maybe even so poorly, that's why we do nothing with it at all. But here's my hope. We come to understand the kingdom, the difference that Jesus and the Holy Spirit can make in our lives and how we can continue the work he began so that he can come back and finish what he started. That's what we're going after. Jesus came to earth to start something, to kick something off, and tied to it is the kingdom of God because Jesus came to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom. We read about it this morning. Jesus came to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom. Our passage this morning tells us, Jesus went through all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. We find in the second book of the New Testament, the book of Mark, the, the author describes the overarching ministry of Jesus. He writes, Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. This is an incredible summary of the ministry and teaching of Jesus. Those sentences. If you were to take the whole of Jesus' teaching and put them in one sentence, this would be it. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. That's the summary. This is what Jesus is all about. He came into the synagogues preaching this one simple, profound, and power-packed message. Over and over, this is what he's preaching. Everything then and everything now has to do with the fact that the kingdom of God's at hand. Everything right now. Whenever the gospel writers, the writers of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they summarize the ministry of Jesus, they do so by saying he came proclaiming the kingdom. And then we look at Matthew chapter 10, and Jesus has been working with the 12 disciples, and he sends them out, and here's what it says in Matthew 10, verse 7, and proclaim as you go, saying, so Jesus is giving instructions. Here's what you say. Proclaim the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. That's powerful ministry, right? That's what we walk in, or at least we're supposed to. This is what the disciples were taught to preach. And, and then you find in Luke chapter 10, another episode. Now he's got 72. And guess what he tells them? Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you. Heal the sick in it and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. We need to understand the gospel of the kingdom, the good news about the kingdom of God. Because Jesus taught it. He preached it. He showed his followers what to do with it. So we need to figure it out too. So I want to get into what is the kingdom. And thankfully Jesus shows us. Jesus came and showed us the nature of the kingdom. Going back to our passage in Mark that I read from chapter 1. The time is fulfilled. Jesus preached. So what does that mean? The time is fulfilled. I, you know, we read these phrases and sometimes you just kind of, you know, can get in a hurry. 
But what does this mean? The time is fulfilled. As you look at the narrative of God's word, you look at this narrative, you look at the storyline of the Bible, what you find is there's promise and fulfillment. Promise and fulfillment. That's the storyline. Ultimately, everything is looking forward to something at the end of this book. It's pointing to that. The kingdom of God, it belongs to a time that's being fulfilled. This is really important. And so now how do we see that played out in the Old Testament? I want to provide the arch, the storyline for you this morning so you understand the story we're living in today. We see this promise given to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And this promise culminates in the Old Testament in the life of a king named David. Anybody heard of David? Okay, so David's an important guy in the Old Testament. And and the, the kingdom of Israel, it culminates to him. David ruled during the time of Israel's greatest glory. He was a person truly given to God despite his sins. After David, his son Solomon, he rules. But then there comes this decline for the nation of Israel. And so eventually there comes this hope for a restoration of a David-like rule in the land once again. Like things fall apart, so then there's this hope, this anticipation of this David-like rule. We know it's going to happen again. So the future for Israel became a hope that God would do the David thing again in their midst. They're hoping for this. This hope became tied to a phrase, the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord, that's a really important phrase. And what this was is a day of judgment upon Israel's enemies, but also upon Israel itself, because God's people were refusing to act like God's people. So the day of the Lord is this day of judgment. Instead of taking care of the poor, the people of Israel, and the oppressed, they, they actually ripped off the poor, the alien, the widow, the orphan. So basically God says, look, I'm going to do it. I'm going to take care of the marginalized. So Israel, you've got to do it too. If you're the people of God, this is just what we do. That continues today too, by the way. But now Israel wasn't good at this. And, and so the Lord was going to come and somehow set things straight regarding Israel's enemies, but also Israel itself. So as you read through the Old Testament, you find the predominant theme of the prophets is one of judgment. That on the day of the Lord, God's reign of righteousness and justice, it's finally going to take place. After the rule of David and Solomon and the decline of the nation of Israel, we find justice comes in the form of Babylonian captivity. So justice comes. Judgment comes. And so then what happens as they return to the land, so they do return, so they're exiled, but they return some 50, 70 years later, a great number of people, they begin to recognize they've just faced the judgment of God, but here's the good news about the day of the Lord. It's judgment and salvation. It's both. So we don't fear the judgment because salvation follows. So now they're anticipating, okay, we faced the judgment, so now salvation will surely follow because they're going back to the land. Israel was judged and carted off to Babylon, and now it's been saved and being sent back to the land. But the experience of coming back into the land became this colossal disappointment. It had its times of being really good, but in the end, a lot of people, they didn't return. So despair sets in, and several hundred years later, Israel's become a pawn in between strong nation states. The Old Testament prophets had told the people of a restored future, that God would finally act on their behalf. But people eventually give up on the idea that God's going to do anything in history. They gave up on that idea. They just felt like that's just not going to happen again. And so the people of Israel, they face 400 years of silence. And now people are looking for God to come in from the outside of history and bring all things to conclusion, and he's going to start a new age. I, we need to understand the storyline of the Old Testament if we're going to understand the storyline of the New Testament. This is the fervor. This is the anticipation. God's going to come outside of history and set all things right for us. There was this understanding that people were living in this age, an evil age, where things are all out of whack. There's sickness and demon possession, and people were waiting for the age to come when God would come in and set all things straight. They understood this age was Satan's age, that the age to come would break in a dramatic way where God would rule. And this is where we get the language, the kingdom of God, because that's God's rule. People were waiting for Satan's age to be taken over by God's rule, the time of God's rule. This is what they're waiting for. And within that fervor of people, waiting for the day of the Lord, 
a day of both judgment and salvation. There appears a man in the wilderness, a man wearing clothes of camel's hair who ate some interesting food. His name is John the Baptizer. It is interesting how God uses interesting people, right? He just does. And I think that's to say, that's got to be God, right? That's just what he does. So no matter who you are today, God wants to use you. That's just the nature of the kingdom. And so this man named John the Baptizer, he shows up on the scene with all this fervor. They're waiting for the day of the Lord. And he's telling people, we're at the brink. We stand right here in this line between this age and the age to come. Like we're on the line, folks. The day is about to come. The age to come. And he says, are you ready? Are you ready to face the judgment of the Lord? If not, repent and be baptized. I don't know about you, but if you've been waiting hundreds of years for the day of the Lord, you know it's coming, I'm jumping in the lake. Right? That's what I'm doing. That's how I'm responding. He says, if you're not ready, repent and be baptized. The winnowing fork is in his hand. He's going to burn the chaff and separate the wheat. With the wheat. Get ready. Get ready, he says. And it's in this context. Jesus of Nazareth, he comes down to where John is baptizing people. And he gets baptized himself. And he identifies himself with the movement of John. This messianic movement of the day of the Lord that's approaching and it's in that great event of submitting to John's baptism that Jesus faces this climactic event in his life. It's been almost 30 years of silence, but now Jesus is on the scene. He's baptized. Heaven is ripped open. The Holy Spirit descends on him, and a voice from heaven declares, this is my son, my beloved son, in whom I'm pleased. And immediately following this event, we find Jesus serving with John. He's baptizing alongside him, but he eventually abandons the river and enters into the synagogues in Galilee. And it's in these synagogues he's announcing the good news that God's kingdom has arrived. He knew it at baptism. God's kingdom has arrived. The day is here. But before Jesus makes these ongoing announcements, synagogue to synagogue, as, as we've already read those passages, we have this episode in the wilderness where Jesus, he's sorting things out and hap what happened at his baptism. So remember, Jesus is fully God, but he's fully man. He says he emptied himself in Philippians of his divine attributes. So Jesus is becoming aware of who he is, like God just spoke his identity on him, like he does on all of us. You are meant to be, to live as a child of God. And so now Jesus is, he's sorting through this stuff in the wilderness. He's like, what happened there? Like 30 years, like I'm hammering away at stones as a carpenter mason, and, and now heaven rips open. Okay, would that shock anybody? Jesus has to sort through that stuff. And so now he's discovering his unique relationship with God the Father. He's realizing his messianic destiny as the suffering king. He's thinking about passages like Isaiah 42. It says, Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen. That's the language of his baptism. And whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. So he's having to think about these things. He, he's got to figure out Isaiah 53 and wrestle through this. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. He's, he's working through this stuff. But here's what we see. And, and how are we responding? All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned away every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. God lays the iniquity on the son. And he dies for us all because we all want to go our own way. And while Jesus is discovering who he is, Satan comes and he tempts him. If you are the son of God, turn these stones into bread. And here's what Satan wants to know. Jesus, will you use and abuse the relationship of father and son? That's what he wants to know. It's a temptation early believers faced, and we face it still. The early believers, Paul writes, he's a New Testament follower of Jesus he writes in a, in a book called Romans, chapter 6, he says, Should we keep on sinning so that God can show us more and more of his wonderful grace? Like the early church is struggling, like, well, God's a good father, so let's just kind of keep on doing whatever we want to do. But Paul says, by no means. How can we, who have died to sin, still live in it? Yeah. 
So this is the temptation of Jesus. He faces the same temptations we do. And if you've made a decision to follow Jesus and you've become a child of God, the question is, will you abuse that relationship and go on sinning? I hope not. And then Satan shows Jesus all the kingdoms of the world. And he says, to you I will give this authority if you will worship me. Satan had dominion over the earth. Did you know that? The cross came and solved that, by the way. I'm going to get to that good news. But he says, I will give it to you, Jesus, if you'll bow down to me. In other words, Jesus, come be Satan's kind of Messiah. You want to know what Satan's kind of Messiah is? One who conquers by sword and power and the nations follow. Jesus, will you establish your kingdom through ballot box or military might? That's Satan's Messiah. Go the way of power, triumph, and glory. Do it this way and the whole world will follow. But God took the risk of doing it his own way instead of Satan's way. And he won by love and grace. That amazes me still. Ladies and gentlemen, it may not look like much, but that's all we've got. Love and grace and truth. Holy Spirit power. But you know what? That's enough. That's enough. Jesus shows us. The last temptation, Satan says, well, where are you going to start? From Jerusalem, the temple? Throw yourself off and the angels will bear you up. Let's start the show. Jesus says it's not the way. I don't need grand displays. I don't need grandiose things. I just need a message proclaimed in word and action that the time is fulfilled. The kingdom has come. Repent and believe in the good news. The hopes and expectations of people were being realized in the life and ministry of Jesus. The kingdom of God was and is at hand. That's what we need to realize this morning. But yet there's this misunderstanding of the term kingdom because we think kingdom is a place, a realm. You know, like England is a kingdom, right? And that's a place. But the kingdom of God does not belong to the category of space. It belongs to the category of time. It has to do with reign and rule, not realm. Kingdom of God is reign and rule. It doesn't need to be realm. The kingdom of God is a time when God rules. The kingdom of God is a time when God steps onto the scene and he ushers in his kingdom. And Jesus speaks to the kingdom in two ways. It's both this future event, but it's also this present reality. So it's kind of an interesting thing on the nature of the kingdom. We find it in Luke chapter 17, being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come. Notice they know it's a time thing. When, not where, when will the kingdom of God come? He answered them, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is, or there, for behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. The kingdom arrived in the ministry of Jesus. He was in their midst. But how can something be both present and future at the same time? Right? That's kind of confusing. But the answer lies in the person of the king. Where the king is, the kingdom is. As we sing about Jesus, the king is here. So God's kingdom is here. Where the king is exercising his sovereign authority, there the kingdom is. Jesus came to show the nature of the kingdom, which is a future event. Future event. I should probably go this way for you, right? Future event in a present reality. The king and the kingdom has come. Have you received it? If not, my prayer is you do that today. Jesus came to show us the nature of the kingdom, but he also came to reveal the mystery of the kingdom. He came to reveal the mystery of the kingdom. The new age had dawned. So we were in this age. Now we're in the age to come, the age of God's rule. And it was inaugurated with Jesus. But the problem was, for the people of that first century, they're waiting for God to show up, and all they get is Jesus. And what they see is not what they were expecting. Remember, people were expecting that God show up outside of history. Power and triumph and signs like big. Naked baby in a manger. That's what you get. It seemed like he had no influence, no money, no power. So what in the world could this have to do with God's kingdom? This is the mystery. 
What they were getting is not what they were expecting. Read the books called the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And over and over, you'll hear people ask Jesus, show us a sign. Show us a sign. Jesus is like, you don't get it. Instead of destroying his enemies, Jesus submits to them. Well, that can't be right. Instead of triumphing over his enemies with power and might, he triumphs over them with forgiveness and grace. The lion is a lamb. The king is a servant. Paul writes the church in Corinth, for Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, to those who get it, my hope is you get it today, to those who get it, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. A crucified Messiah. That's like saying fried ice. It made no sense. What is a crucified Messiah? Everything Jesus the Messiah did, it's all wrong. It all appears as weakness. That's what people are thinking. But let's not laugh too loud at them this morning. If we're honest with ourselves, we are forever thinking Jesus is doing it all wrong too. Now, I know we're glad for the cross, but we would sure like him to come and smite our enemies, right? God, save me! Wipe out those enemies of mine. Now, you can fill in the blank with whatever group you're struggling with right now. That's in there. But God wants to work that out, by the way. And so we can struggle with the same Jesus today. And so then the question we have to ask ourselves is, are we going to go the way of Jesus, one of grace and forgiveness, or are we hoping he displays his power against all of our enemies? This is the mystery of the kingdom, the secret of the kingdom, that the dramatic inbreaking had begun in Jesus of Nazareth. Instead of a dramatic ending, they get a servant Messiah. And Jesus alone knows the secret for a while. He silences demons who are trying to announce him. Like he's just trying to keep it a secret for a while because people were not ready to deal with the fact that the Messiah had come at a dirty animal stall in Bethlehem and he would suffer and die at the hands of his enemies. Like they weren't ready for that. But the key to understanding the New Testament is to look at it through the right framework. The kingdom of God was inaugurated with the coming of Jesus and it's going to be consummated at his second coming. God's rule has already begun in our world. Thank you, Jesus. It's, he's already made its presence known. The kingdom is already here, just not in its fullness yet. Jesus Christ has already dealt Satan an ultimate blow in the great holy war at the cross and subsequent resurrection. He dealt it. I've used this example before, but I think it's worth repeating this morning as we consider the mystery of the kingdom. How do we understand that this, this reality of it's, it's already but not yet? So D-Day, June 6, 1944, was not the end of World War II. But that day was the beginning of the end of the war in Europe. Although there were many important battles in the war, most historians would agree D-Day was the turning point for the war. At this point, Hitler knew his days were numbered. So he began to turn his attention away from the front, speed up the killing of people in concentration camps, and ultimately he was retreating. Hitler knew in that moment He had lost the war, even though he had not surrendered or been captured yet. But he knew it was only a matter of time before he's finally defeated. Victory was not fully realized until almost a year later, May 8th, 1945. This is the actual VE, Victory in Europe Day. Thank you, brother. Because of what happened on D-Day, there was a Victory Day fully realized a year later. So what does this have to do with the kingdom of God? At the cross, Satan had a D-Day. He was, in fact, defeated. He is a defeated foe. His days are numbered. The time has been fulfilled. 
The kingdom of God has come. Repent and believe in this good news. That's the message. Satan knows his days are numbered, and so he's on retreat. And the church now advances on enemy territory. And the enemy's gates, Matthew chapter 16, they will not be able to withstand God's ever-advancing kingdom. That's the promise. Jesus will build his church. But in this retreat of the enemy, this age still exists. But at the cross, there's the beginning to the end of this evil age. One of the things I find interesting about D-Day and V-Day is there's these 11 months between these days. And more American lives were lost within that time period than in all the other years of World War II and all the other battles that took place before D-Day. More lives lost. Victory was assured, but yet there was this loss. After D-Day, people were still going to die. Battles were still going to occur, but there's no question of what's going to happen. Victory would occur. There was only one question. When? In his retreat, Satan is still trying to wreak havoc upon the earth. I think we've seen that this year, right? He prowls about like a roaring lion we find in 1 Peter, seeking people to devour. But we anticipate a day in the consummation of all things that there will be a V-day, a victory day, where what began on the cross is fully realized in the second coming of Jesus. In the coming of Jesus, God puts his flag, what was on enemy turf, because we gave it over to him, by the way. And he said, this is my planet. I claim it in the name of the cross and through the resurrection, and there's going to be a V-Day that will consummate what has already occurred in the past. But I want to be clear today. There has never been a promise that we're not going to face trouble, that we're not going to fight battles, or that we're not going to die. There's simply a promise we will win no matter what happens. Because God has already done the winning we're simply a part of the mop-up operation. Ever thought of it that way? That's what we're doing. We're like mopping it up. And Jesus is going to come back and fix it, finish it. And I will say this, that mop-up operation, it may cost us our lives. But so what? When did that become important? And now you're thinking he's crazy. But guess what? I'm not. I'm just a Christian. And I'm New Testament. This is what we're going after. God is asking us to live the future in the present time. That's what he's asking us. That's why we're going to look crazy because our values, as we go through this series, our values are not based on this present age. If they were, we would live terrible lives. It's not based on that. Our values have to do with the age to come, God's kingdom. And those values don't align with this age. I'm sure you've bumped up against that. So I would say, let's stop trying to make them fit in this age. Our values need to align with God's kingdom. And his kingdom's eternal. Everything else will pass away. We will not advance our lives or God's kingdom through power and triumph, but through sacrifice and love. This is what Jesus reveals as a mystery of the kingdom. It's part of why he came, but he also came to tell us how to enter the kingdom. <clears throat> Mark summarizes the ministry of Jesus. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe this good news. So Jesus came preaching, <clears throat> good news, God's rule has begun. But some might think, that's not good news, God's going to get me. As a kid, that wasn't good news, God's going to get me. My poor parents, I think they prayed, asked that my kids would repay me. Those prayers have been answered. <laughs> oh man, our kids are so much better than I was. But for Jesus, he thinks it's good news because God is going to get you. And he's going to set you free. That's why it's good news. And that's the difference. We think judgment, Jesus thinks salvation. And yes, God comes against those things in our lives that cause us harm. We call that sin. And, and the action is judgment. But that is what brings salvation into our lives. 
So let's not run from it. We stop trying to earn our way to God, and that's good news. We can't earn it. We can't buy it. We just have to accept it that God takes us just as we are. With all our filth. He just accepts us that way. God doesn't say, clean up your act and then I'll love you. No, he says, I love you. Now, clean up your act. Graciously, freely, he accepts us. That's good news. The good news is God's announcement of his acceptance of sinners. All the time, Jesus is sitting at the table with outcasts. God's announcement was coming in the form of joyous feasts with people like tax collectors. It was coming in the form of a woman who's a prostitute who washes Jesus' feet with her tears and wipes them with her hair. And this woman gets to hear the good news. She's been accepted by the eternal God himself. What incredible news. But now the religious, they're upset about this because the religious want things to be fair. If the religious are going to work so hard for God, they should at least get special favors, right? Jesus talks about this in the parable about day laborers where a vineyard owner, he goes out in the morning, he hires some men to work for his field for a day's wage. And then what this vineyard owner does is he keeps going back like all throughout the day, even to the last hour. He grabs some guys, throws them in the vineyard, and then as he lines them up to start paying them, he pays the last guys first. They've worked an hour. He still gives them a day's wage. And the guys in the back of the line are like, wow, this guy is generous. Can't wait till I get to the front of the line. They get to the front of the line. He pays them day's wage. They're like, whoa, that's not fair. Here's what they say. You have made them equal to us. They don't like it. I mean, who wants a God who loves his enemies as much as he loves you? I don't need that in a God. I want God to side with me against my enemies. We want mercy for us, but fair for the other guy. Let me say that again. I don't think you heard me. We want mercy for us, but fair for the other guy. It's mercy for us all. The religious, I mean, why do all this work unless God's going to like us a little better? We find throughout the New Testament, the religious have a hard time with God's acceptance of sinners. And the reason the religious have a hard time with God's acceptance of sinners is because they think God accepts them because they're good. So they've missed it too. Like they've missed the best news. God's simply, no qualifiers, just willing to accept us. That's what's amazing. That's good news. That God accepts us just the way we are. And he does the same for our enemies too. Come to me all who are weary, Jesus says. I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. We're talking about entering the kingdom right now. Take my yoke upon you. The yoke of the law leads to the yoke of sin because it simply points out sin, it is powerless to change it in your life. So Jesus says, change yokes. That yoke doesn't fit. Mine will. My yoke is easy and light. Today's a new age, the age of God's rule. The kingdom of God is found in a prayer. Jesus teaches his disciples, when you pray, pray like this. Father, Daddy, Abba. In the kingdom of God, its subjects are children who could know a father's warm embrace. It's good news. We find people entering the kingdom in stories like Zacchaeus. And I mean, this is one of those people you don't want God to be nice to. Because we want God to be fair. The Zacchaeus types, they're working for the enemy. With the enemy's protection, and they're ripping off God's people. Scum. They're the kind of people we hope God takes out. Jesus, protect my children, take out my enemies. Jesus, be with my wife. You know, like that's what we're open for. Like that's Zacchaeus. You can read about the story of Zacchaeus in Luke chapter 19 if you're unfamiliar with it. 
He's living in Jericho. Here's what, I, what fascinates me. He's living in Jericho, which if you understand the time of the first century, the priests who would operate in the temple in Jerusalem, they had homes in Jericho because it's a nice tropical-like Floridian place. So there's priests' homes everywhere there. And what kind of message do you think they were sharing to Zacchaeus? Repent! God hates you. How can you do this? They're wearing their Turner Burn t-shirts for Zacchaeus. So this is the environment that Zacchaeus is living in. Surrounded by priests who minister in the temple, but always he's always stealing from them, always robbing them, and never repenting of his evil acts. But then Jesus comes along. He did something no one else had ever done for Zacchaeus. He goes out to dinner with them. He went to dinner with his scum. And this act of love and forgiveness did what all those years of contempt and hatred could not. It brought about Zacchaeus' repentance, where he decides to give back everything he'd taken, even four times as much as he'd stolen. Entrance into the kingdom often comes through Christian kindness. Jesus says the time has come. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent. But what is repentance? Repentance describes what takes place when we enter the kingdom. It's, it's becoming like a child again, being totally dependent on God. Jesus describes the act of repentance in, in Mark chapter 8. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. Take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will keep it, will save it. Repentance is a denial of self. First and foremost, repentance is a denial of self. That's a hard thing to do. It's actually an overthrow of Satan's rule. So in case you didn't know it, if you're not under God's rule... You're under Satan's influence. Which one do you want? We have this curious verse in Matthew chapter 11, verse 12. <clears throat> Jesus is speaking. He says, from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence and the violent take it by force. To repent. I want you to understand this because we're going to call for that today. It is this violent overthrow of Satan's rule in your life. But guess what? Jesus could come and violently overthrow him, and you need it. You don't want him to have any ownership of your life. All other kingdoms must give in to God's rule. All of them. All other allegiances have to be done away with. You know what water baptism is? It says, Jesus, I pledge allegiance to your name, and I cast everything else aside. But we have this self-interest to secure our own self-existence in some way. We, we all have this on some level. We secure our lives by, by only putting a certain kind of people around us. We secure our lives through financial planning. We, we secure our lives through career advancement. We put all these different things in place to secure our self-existence in some way. And Jesus says, the person who's trying to secure their self-existence is actually in the process of losing it. He or she who's trying to save their life, they're actually losing it. It's not working. The only one who's going to find his life is the one who loses it for the gospel. The person who's going to find his or her life is the one who gives up the urgency and the attempt of securing their life before God. That's who finds it. And it's not that you go about losing your life, like, like in search of another one, like, I'm going to lose it, and I'm going to find another one. No, you lose your life, you give up your attempts at trying to control everything, and then you wake up one day and you say, there it is. I found it. I, I found it. I don't know where it was, but they, there it is. You wake up one day and you realize you can trust Jesus. And this is what it all comes down to. We have a very difficult time trusting God with our lives. We need to be honest about that this morning. We have a very difficult time trusting God with our lives. And I think it's because deep down, we know we can't really be trusted. So then we throw that on God. Say, I, I don't know if he can be either. I don't think we fully understand that God's rule is our security. Somebody needs to hear that today. God's rule is our security. 
You see, we can't find our lives. God finds it for us, and then he secures it for us. He secures it for us in a way that only God can. Because Jesus is king, he secures our existence. We can trust him with our life. What I have found is one of the hardest things, this is one of the hardest things for Christians to believe. And I'm not even talking about non-believers right now. Believers had a, have an incredibly difficult time truly believing that God accepts them as they are and he can be trusted with their lives and he's absolutely trustworthy. Most of us play a bit of a, a hybrid model with God. We try to run on electric, but we've got a backup gasoline engine in case it doesn't work out. We always have a backup plan, you know, in case things don't work out like I think they should. I don't think God intended that, so boop, I'll fix it. We have a just-in-case view of God. Just in case God can't be trusted, but kingdom living is actually taking Jesus for what he means, which appears to us as this radical obedience, this scary business that only some crazy people follow. And yet if you take this path, I'm telling you this morning, like all of a sudden you wake up one day and you realize God's done it. Like God, he's done it. I'm not worried about anything. Because you know God has secured your life. God comes with this gift of his rule. He secures your life. And once it happens, it will free you forever. Forever. You can lose your life and trust him. You need to know that this morning. You can lose your life and trust him. I could talk to you a long time about that. But part of the scary thing, of course, is the fact that there's this element of absolutely trusting, having to trust God, and, and our being a nice group of people, well, maybe that's not going to work out. You know, the, the classical nice guy would have been the rich young man we find in Matthew chapter 19 who could have led any church in America, become a Christian celebrity in a moment. Think about what he says. I mean, he's going to the right guy. He's talking to Jesus. Okay, that's good. He's this decent guy. He asks the right question. And when it comes down to it, like, this is a really great guy. He says he's loved his neighbor, honored his father and mother, never stolen. Like, he's got this list of, like, I've done all those since my youth. He, he basically says, I'm not sure I could say that. Oh, what a great guy. I like this guy. And you know what we would have said to this guy? Man, well done. You are amazing. We need to push you forward. You should be leading something. What does Jesus say? Oh, like, you're, you're serious. You really want to know. Well, go sell everything. Come follow me. And with that one statement, we find this good and decent young man. He walks away sorrowful because he's very rich. Turned out his goodness, his righteousness was actually evil. His goodness was non-goodness. He had never stolen or killed. But so what? What happened? His material possessions were what had secured his self-existence. His material possessions had secured his self-existence. And Jesus knew it. And so what Jesus was actually inviting him to is to say, and if you give that up, you won't worry about anything because I will secure your life. That was the invitation. And so when Jesus tries to tap that security in his life, he went away sorrowful. He rejected God's rule. And I wonder how many of us here today, we've, we've secured our own self-existence in some way or another and rejected God's rule. But then why is this? We talk about what is repentance, but why does God's kingdom demand it? It goes back to the garden. What God intended was a universe. Here's what God's intent was. A universe where one will existed. God's will. One will. That all other created beings in perfect relationship with him followed. And because they all follow that same will, there is incredible unity in a blessed creation. The prayer, God's will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And I'll tell you this, you cannot imagine a better world than that. With every created being doing God's will as it's being done in heaven. That's utopia right there. So why is the whole world so divisive right now. Because instead of God's will uniting all of creation, each person's individual will demands to be at the center. We sing about Jesus at the center. That's not happening right now. Individual wills at the center wreaks havoc. And all of sin is tied back to this. Everything you find in Scripture is linked to this. 
this desire of putting ourselves at the center, our own self-rule, our own self-reign, where my will is done in heaven, like I forced it on earth. So what God's rule does is it comes and he's trying to undo the garden in us. He's trying to get us to pray the disciples' prayer, Lord, your kingdom come, your will be done. And so there has to come this moment in our lives when we experience repentance. And repentance means to deny self, to take up a cross, to lose life so that you might find one. If you put the emphasis on loss, then you're going to lose. Because if the emphasis is in finding, which is where it should be, where will you wake up one, one morning and you find out God did it? He found it. I gained it. I didn't lose anything. I lose garbage, probably. And you gain goodness. And that's where real freedom is found. And this is the good news about the kingdom. That freedom can be found by giving up your self-rule, influenced by Satan, by the way, and accepting God's gift of his rule so that he can secure your life and set you free. You want freedom? You need God's rule. Jesus came to tell us how to enter the kingdom, and Jesus came to model for us the ethics of the kingdom. Last thing this morning. Jesus came to model for us the ethics of the kingdom. If you want to know the ethics or the way of living in God's kingdom, take a look at Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. Those are the ethics of God's kingdom. But I also want to be clear this morning to explain that this is not new law. It's not. The, the ethics, the good works of the kingdom, they're a response to the work Jesus has already done. He says, you are blessed, you are salt, you are light. So be that. That's who you are. So these chapters in Matthew are a description of the kind of people that we're going to be when we are his children. It's a description when we've responded properly to his grace. That's what we're going to look like. One way I've heard it expressed is religion is grace and ethics is gratitude. In other words, because of God's grace, we can enter the kingdom and out of gratitude, we live like kingdom citizens. You want to know who a Christian is? A Christian is a person who really wants to become one. So if you've made a decision to follow Jesus, it's not that you're a Christian, you're simply becoming one. We're all in process. When we make a decision to follow Jesus, it's not that divine perfection sets in. We all know that. It's simply that divine infection starts to spread. Things spread in us. We as children of God are becoming what we already are. Discipleship is becoming who we are. The rest of our life is becoming what we already are. Becoming a Christian, it's a, it's a new want to, a new will. God expects us to be this way, and it's his gift to us. His command is his gift. This is very different from law. Law has to do with conduct to be controlled. This has to do with an attitude that springs up from a new source, a new power, a new enablement that the Holy Spirit brings into our lives. A Christian who's walking close to the Lord is a Christian who regularly repents. The closer you walk with God, the more you realize the depth of your need. Repentance is joy as God moves you to realize who you can become. We should never be afraid of or ashamed of repentance. It's a joyful humiliation as God makes us what we are. So we have this verse in Matthew chapter 5, verse in Matthew chapter 5, where, where Jesus says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. So ESV says exceeds. Uh, the New American Standard says, almost like goes beyond. So how do we understand that? Are we supposed to be more perfect than the Pharisees? No. It's that the Pharisees created a fence around their lives, and they actually created a fence before the fence. It's crazy. More laws for the other laws. And so they create this fence, and so what Jesus is saying is, I don't want you just to live within the fence. You're meant to go beyond it. It's not just your actions, it's your heart. That's what he's referring to. You see, the Pharisees externalized piety. So they had this fence they lived within. And it kept them secure. And we sometimes can do the same thing. But the problem is that's not the work of God. God doesn't want to paint the outside of us and leave the inside alone. He doesn't want to paint the barn red and leave the dung inside. Right? It always cracks me up. All these people get married in barns. Like, you know what was in there? There is a righteousness that has to go beyond there. 
He's trying to absolutely radically change us inside. Another way of looking at this, you are not a thief because you steal. You steal because you're a thief. If you never stole, but you had it in your heart to steal, if you had the opportunity, but you, even if you never did it, you're still a thief at heart. And this is what God is after. Righteousness is not defined by what you do not do. It's defined with what's in your heart. Examples. On occasion, people have asked, can I fill in the blank and still be a Christian? Some of you played this game. Can I go out on a drinking binge with my buddies and still be a Christian? Can I hate liberals and still be a Christian? Hey, let's flip it. Can I hate conservatives and still be a Christian? Can I live with my boyfriend and still be a Christian? Can I hate Muslims still be a Christian? Can I live at odds with my Christian brother and sister and still be a Christian? Can I and still be? But that's not the right question. You don't understand Christianity if you're asking that kind of question. If you're living in such a way where you want to know how far we can go before we've crossed the fenced line, before we've walked outside of that fenced-in area, we're living under the law instead of living within the good works of the kingdom in response to the work Jesus has done in our lives. It's a big difference. If we're asking, can I and still be? I'm not sure what the kingdom looks like because unless your righteousness goes beyond you creating a fence to live within, yours is not the kingdom, Jesus says. Why do we do this? Why do we live within some kind of fence like the Pharisees? Because we're looking for some type of security, and these types of questions means we're trying to find security through obedience to some type of law. But that is not the kind of security we're offered in God's kingdom. We're offered the security of a God who loves us and accepts us with all of that garbage, by the way. He loves you. I want you to hear this morning. He loves you. If you've been asking, can I and still be, he loves you today. But he offers you so much more. He doesn't want you living in a fenced-in area. He wants you going well beyond it. Exceed it. And get to the heart of the matter. Because as you follow those kingdom ethics, you get to live in human flourishing. Because the way of sin is death. And the way of God is life. And life eternal. And it hears this this morning that Jesus loves and accepts us in all of our garbage. He does. He loves and accepts us in our judgmental attitudes, our sexual sins, our prejudices, our greed, our pride. But he loves us enough to give us the Holy Spirit, which gives us the power to return that love we have received through devotion to the King of Kings. He loves us as we are, but loves us enough to give us the power to change it. We can live in such a way that angry thoughts are put into check, lustful desires are dealt with, greed turns into giving, pride becomes humility, because otherwise our righteousness will always stop at the fence. The whole construct for ethics in the kingdom of God is that our righteousness must go beyond the fence or we've not entered the kingdom. And a seminary professor that was sharing with me some, a long time ago now, that he had, a, a, he had had a long time ago a seminary <clears throat> student who he was advising, and, and he and his, his, his wife were living in this um, uh, apartment. It, it wasn't necessarily, it was okay, it was taken care of. The landlord was actually a deacon at a local church, evangelical. And, and so this is a while ago now because there was lead paint, and obviously that's a problem. We know that today, like there's laws against that. At the time, there was not. But then this, the seminary student goes and approaches the landlord, this evangelical believer, this deacon in a church, and he says, <clears throat> hey, uh, I've got a new baby, and I was just wondering if, if you would mind to repaint or let me paint with water-based paints. And, and the deacon says, law says I don't have to. Law says I don't have to. That's stopping at the fence. That's not kingdom living. The righteousness of the new age is not defined by not doing certain things. It's defined by actively doing all kinds of things that end up reflecting a selfless and giving lifestyle. That's the difference. It's a radical new way of life. This new righteousness changes our relationships with people. It changes our relationship with God and our relationship with material possessions. As you read Matthew 5, 6, and 7, those are three categories. God, people, possessions. Those are the things it addresses. Because in God's kingdom, you're freed from the need to possess. Because in case you're unaware, possessions possess the possessor. They own you. That's why God says you can't serve God in money because something winds up owning you. You've got to have God's rule in your life. 
our movement, the Assemblies of God, it came out of a desire to see Jesus return. And there was this time in our movement where we would sing these songs about the second coming of Jesus. But shortly after World War II, so let me say this, our movement happened like in the rubbles, like on the other side of the tracks. That's where the Assemblies of God started. But what happens is all of a sudden after World War II, we started becoming more affluent as a, as a movement and people that were in the church. And, and what happened is people in our movement stopped singing those songs because we became affluent and the placement of our treasure changed. Our treasure was no longer laid up in heaven. It started to accumulate on earth. And what I've wondered is if we would rather Jesus would not come back too soon because we actually like it right here, right now. But I also wonder if part of the uncomfortable nature of this last year has been in part to remind us we're not home yet. Things will ultimately not be made right until Jesus comes again. No matter how hard we work, how many laws we pass, how many things we do, things will not be ultimately made right until Jesus comes again. And we are meant to live for that day. You are meant to live for that day. Everyone is. And we will experience joy and happiness. You need to hear this morning. You will live in freedom and joy and happiness if you're living for that day. If you're losing your life and Jesus gives it to you. We've been invited to live in the kingdom of God. Have you accepted that invitation? Are you living in the kingdom today? Music team's going to come back and join us as we close. And in our passage this morning, I started with this morning, it says, when Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed, they were confused, they were helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. And then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, the laborers are few. Pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest, send out laborers into it. You and I, are meant to be an answer to the disciples' prayers. You ever thought about that? We're the laborers. We're standing in harvest. We're standing in harvest on the Purdue campus. We're standing in harvest in our neighborhoods. We're standing in harvest in Walmart and Aldi. And I believe we're standing in harvest in sanctuary, in our overflow rooms, and online today. And so what I want to do today is, number one, I want to invite you to be a part of the harvest. you got to start there you are invited to receive the good news of Jesus today. It's yours. Accept that free gift. You don't have to earn it. Jesus gives it. And then out of loving gratitude for this free gift we're given, then the Holy Spirit comes in our lives. He changes us at salvation. And now we have this power to start living different. And that's what you're invited to today. So that you can start walking the way of life instead of the way of death. What are you going to choose today? What are you going to choose I invite you to stand as we, we're going to close in song, but at the same time, we're just going to start baptizing people who are responding to the goodness of God today. If you have not entered the kingdom, or maybe you've not entered in a long time, you've been away from the kingdom, you've been, you've been living in this age and not in the age to come, my heart for you today is come and be prayed with. If you want to be baptized today, we're ready for you. We've got t-shirts, we've got shorts, we're ready for you today. Today is meant to be. So as we talk about the day of the Lord, this is part of that. This is a day of salvation for people. Is it a day of salvation for you today? I tell you, it's meant to be. Are you here today and you realize you've not made that decision to enter God's kingdom? Not really. But today, today, you're hearing John the baptizer declaring, the time is coming. The Messiah is arriving with winnowing fork in his hand. He will separate the wheat from the chaff. Be the wheat this morning. Be the harvest. Because in what group do you find yourself? Have you been simply trying to live in this fence, not realize we're meant to go so far beyond that? This is my own security. This is God's security. Have you allowed God to secure your life today? But maybe you haven't, and today's that day. If you've been baptized before, but you just have this compulsion to come and be baptized, do it today. Just follow Jesus. Devote your life to him. Pledge allegiance in the baptism tank today. Today is your day. So music team, they're going to come. But don't wait. If you're in the sanctuary, we've got some people right here ready to receive you. Right at the foot of the cross today. If you're in our overflow rooms, come out of those rooms. Come out of your rows. Come out of the balcony. Walk down to these people. They're going to give you a change of clothes. While song is happening, we're just going to start baptizing. I'm not going to dismiss today. So after they sung, if you want to dismiss, feel free. But we're going to stay here and baptize people until we're done baptizing today. That's what we're here for.
don't allow Satan to influence your life anymore. The only way Satan doesn't influence your life is when you've given your life over to God's rule. It's him or the other. Which one? Choose one today. Jesus says, choose who you're going to serve today. Jesus is a good king. If you're at home this morning, you just didn't get out on time, drive in. We're here. We'll baptize you. Come in your pajamas. I don't care. That's what we're here for today. So as we sing, go ahead, start stepping out now. Come down. Visit with our volunteers. Be baptized today in Jesus' name.